Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 241 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali, and you're listening to our porn series. This week, we will continue our conversation on positive and negative effects of porn consumption. Our guest is Diane Gleim, licensed marriage family therapist. Before I tell you about our conversation today, I just wanted to invite those of you who haven't downloaded our free checklist for this month to head over our show notes. I created this list of books, audio, video, and multimedia resources to help you explore your erotic potential. So if you feel that you want to expand your eroticism and world of creativity, this is a checklist for you. Until now, I only have shared it with my own private clients, but since this is my birthday month, I wanted to give you this resource. So make sure you're downloading it now. I'm not sure if I'll keep the link for the following month. So if you are interested, this is your opportunity. As I mentioned, our guest is Diane Gleim, licensed marriage and family therapist, an ASAC certified sex therapist and supervisor practicing in Northern California. Her clients include anyone with sexual concern, individuals and couples ages between 18 to 80 and beyond, and the LGBTQ+, kinky, and poly population. She has been voted Sonoma County's Best Sex Therapist for four years. Finally, Diane has appeared in various media, including podcasts, her local media publication, and in Mel Magazine, The Buzz by Pure Romance, Quartz, and CNN.com. In this episode, we will talk about porn literacy, we're going to talk about her view of porn addiction, and the role of couples' erotic conflict, and the role that porn plays in this dynamic. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Diane Glein. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am honored and excited to have Diane Gleim on our show. Diane, welcome to our show. Hi, Nazanin. Thank you for having me. I am so excited about this conversation. For our listeners, a little bit of background that I had a pleasure of being in a consultation group with Diane, and she was preparing this wonderful presentation for colleagues about porn. And it was just so good that I, I said, I, I must invite her on this show to talk about this. So thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And yes, we need a new way to relate to porn. Yes, yes. So I know me and you talked a lot about this, but let's let's start with defining what is porn. Pornography is erotic imagery. Well, I wouldn't even say it's imagery, really. It's any sort of erotic artistic representation. It could be imagery. It could be something audio, like listening to a podcast, for example. It can be still imagery or moving imagery, still imagery like photographs, paintings, drawings. Could be moving imagery like a film or animation. And it's meant to, it's erotic. 
it's sexual and its intended purpose is to entertain and arouse. You know, what's interesting then about porn is, is its own definition, right? Sometimes people find arousal watching at, I know no one looks at Sears catalog anymore, but something like catalogs. <laughs> right, we're dating ourselves a little <laughs> <Right>. bit. <Yeah. laughs> 50 years. <laughs> I right. bet yes. you get the idea. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, right. And we all remember the catalogs, right? In the mail growing up, right? The underwear section, sure. So tell yes. us what what are some of the ambiguous areas when it comes to porn? Right. So what's ambiguous, some of the things rather that are ambiguous is that we don't know who the individual actors are in real life, meaning we don't know even their sometimes their real names. Uh, they use stage names. We don't know their real ages, for example. We don't know their real sexual orientation. And, and for the most part, the average porn viewer knows very, very little about the porn actor's personal life. For example, if I'm watching a movie with, say, George Clooney in it, chances are I know some things about George Clooney's personal life, and I know that he's acting. I know that he's playing make-believe. But for the average viewer of pornography, they don't know that those things about those the actors or actresses. Another thing we don't know is the off-camera relationship between the actors. And what I mean by this is that you'll often see, like on the mainstream porn sites or the free porn sites, you'll see things like stepmother or, you know, mother and son or cousins or brother and sister, right? Most likely that's not true, <laughs> but we don't know what the real relationship is between those two actors. And lastly, we what we also don't know or is what is unknown is that we don't know the motives of those who participate in pornography. How did they get involved in this, in this endeavor? Are they, were they exploited? Is this human trafficking? Is this free agency? Meaning that they've entered the adult entertainment world of their own choosing, of their own free agency. We don't know that. And some of those questions, when it's unknown, people fill in the blanks of those answers. And whatever answer they come to can make them feel really uncomfortable. But when in fact, what based solely on what we see, we generally cannot tell what the motives are. Such a wonderful point. And I wasn't even thinking like when you're watching like Hollywood movies, it's the agreement that we're making in our mind that is just make believe, even if it's traumatic, but with something like porn, especially the one that's low, lower production, you see in the free websites, people assume that maybe, maybe it's kind of like, it's consciously or subconsciously, these are real people, it's real sex or close to real sex. And yes. for most of those scenarios, those are not, like, that's not the case. Even as you said, like sexual orientation is not accurate. We have like uh, sexual entertainers that they they uh, they work on kind of like heterosexual scenes and they are homosexuals or all sorts of gay yep. lesbians. So I think that that part is also is unknown. Exactly. You know, and you mentioned something interesting that I want to address, and that's this concept in film studies called suspension of disbelief. I learned this when I was an undergraduate at UCLA and I took a few film classes. And what suspension of disbelief means in the film industry is that those all working together to produce a film work together to create what's called that suspension of disbelief for the viewer, meaning that, that the viewer suspends their disbelief, ignores 
ignores the fact that certain things are not real and goes with the storytelling, just sort of joins in. I always think of suspension of disbelief as joining in with the story, with the narrative. So for example, you know, take something like Game of Thrones, right? Where there were dragons and, and things like that. And, and we all know dragons are not real, but we all went with the story, agreed to ignore that fact, <laughs> to join in with the storytelling in order to have a more enjoyable viewing experience. And so some people can suspend their disbelief with porn and say, I understand this is not real, this is make-believe, and others cannot. And when you hear a criticism of, oh, you know, the acting in porn is so bad. What that's really a statement of, or a statement about, is that they're wanting to suspend their disbelief, but something like the, the bad acting is pulling them out of that experience. I love that. I, I didn't think about that aspect of it. And I, I think you brought up such an important point that there's a range of different reasons people are in the industry. Some people, it, it's something that they're passionate about. I certainly seen colleagues that they are in a production they direct things that's that's their calling and some people are doing it because they've been exploited and I, I don't feel as you mentioned that that's the case for everyone so how if we want to be a consumer of porn for any reason how can we know that how can we put that peace like can can create peace of mind for ourselves well, are we going to know it definitively? I think not. But I, but I think, and I think you've talked or written and or written about this very topic yourself, which is seeking out what is now called ethical porn, mm -hmm. which ethical porn, as you know, means that various things. It means that the actors have all been paid fair wages, that they care about the copyrights, things like that, that everybody is there fully and freely consenting to doing whatever it is that they're doing. And the ethical porn sites are generally not free. You have to pay for that and understand that that money that you're paying for the eth to view the ethical porn is going towards those who produced it. So you're helping to pay their salaries. And I think that's really important. I always say in the show that if you like something, you must support it. I think that's very, very important. That's a form of activism that like you, if yes. you just want right. people to get paid fair, then you need to do your part. You know, what's interesting, we, we all of our colleagues in the field, we've seen some people that are really against it. Some people are neutral and some people are, they think that's a, that's a way that can people access their erotic depth. For people that they have a reaction, what are some of the things that you've noticed that contributes to that negative reaction? Religiosity is a factor, and the research actually supports this, that a person's religious beliefs play a, a pretty big role in how do they perceive and receive pornographic imagery. Another way of thinking about this is, do they have conservative or traditional beliefs about sex, gender roles? You know, men should act this way sexually, but not this way. Women should act this way sexually, but not this way. Those may be informed by a person's faith, or it may not, but that's, but that's often a big factor. That's really the biggest factor. In my experience, a person's sexual, sexual experience also plays a role, that if, if they've had a variety of experiences, or rather a variety of partners, they're generally 
less, you know, the language we use in our field is, is squick, right? They're less squicked out by pornography. They understand that, okay, I like this, but I don't like that. And just because I don't like that doesn't mean I have to judge it, shame it, deem it as something bad or negative or evil. It's just, it doesn't, doesn't do it for me. That's okay. I, I think that distinction is, is important that everyone have their own taste, things that they like and dislike. And it doesn't mean that other people who like certain things, there is nothing, nothing inherently being wrong or morally right. being wrong. I think right. one of the wonderful things that you talked about in the presentation was different category of the porn that people are watching. Can you tell us more about that? Right. So I, I think of it that there's different sort of formats of pornography that, you know, like some of the things I've talked about, there's there's imagery, right? There's moving imagery like film or animation, and there's still imagery like photography, paintings, drawings, things like that. There's also literature, right? It's often called erotica or chick lit, chick lit, you know, it's, it's historically understood that women liked it. And uh, I was in the grocery store the other day and they still, in fact, sell the grocery store erotica books in my grocery store. Oh, I didn't know that. I, They're I, still out there. <laughs> I have to go ch check it out. <laughs> yeah. I did. I, I checked recently because I knew you and I were talking. I was like, oh, I need to check to see if they're still there. Yeah, they're there. <laughs> there's also this emerging, because of podcasts, there's this emerging field of audio erotica. So listening to storytelling of some kind, whether that's someone reading reading an erotic story or telling them verbally telling a story maybe of their own experience or their own imagination. And then there's the sort of, you know, 21st century types of pornography. There's the live camming, the interactive stuff, you know, teledildonics, things like that. You know, what's fascinating is that I, I find many, at least I, I can generalize about my clients, they prefer uh, listening to the audio version of this sexually explicit material. Like the video is not kind of connecting with them as much, but when they listen to audio, they like it much better because they say like, you know, I can see myself, as you said, like sometimes it's bad acting in porn. Sometimes yes. my mind goes to if these people are well-paid, but when it's your imagination, and that yes. can be, yes. you can have more freedom. Yes. One of the questions I ask my clients who may come in to see me because they have what a quote unquote problem with porn. One of the questions I ask as part of the exploration around or about their relationship with pornography is when you read pornography or, or watch, view pornography, who do you identify with? And I think that that's an, an interesting, th are, are we, is the person identifying with one of the actors, you know, the doer or the doee, or are they taking a more, taking a step back, being a bit more detached are they, are they taking more of an observer stance that they're just enjoying watching? They're not identifying with or wishing they were one of the actors or another, but they're just observing. They're, they're enjoying the show, enjoying the show. That is so interesting. I never thought about how people are viewing it, right? Because it's like when, when we have our own way of connecting with things, you assume everyone else is like that. But that's, that's such an interesting point. And I know that many of, maybe traditional more free porn is more through male gaze 
as as I'm sure you 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 agree with that as well. That yes. is just even the angle of the camera is a place that a male audience would prefer it. So that's why many of my yes. female clients they like a same sex porn. Yes, yes. Somebody somewhere has decided that you know your generic straight guy. What does the generic straight guy want to watch? And then they've made some pornography that they think reflects that. Well, the problem with that, right, as you've just described, is that a lot of different people watch pornography, at least film, you know, moving image pornography. Women watch it, LGBTQ plus community watches it, and everybody likes something different. And, you know, what's what's great about particularly the ethical porn sites and feminist porn sites is that they are really showing a wide variety of body types, a wide variety of sexual orientations, an entirely different way of filming pornography, and that they're finding that there's a real market for that because that mainstream porn sort of male gaze stuff does not work for everybody. I agree with you. And I thank God that we now we have more diversity within the field, not as much as we hope for it, but there are some diversity within it. You know, I know that Justin Miller did some research about the types of the porn that people are attracted to. And I know you talked about it in your presentation. And I think it's important to talk about because people feel like there's something wrong with them if they're not into what's quote unquote appeared normal, what they think they right. need to like. So tell us more right. about that. Yeah. So Justin Lehmiller, Miller, a colleague of ours, he did some research around wondering what the what are the most common sexual fantasies are, which is just kind of generated by the individual. What what are the things that people fantasize about in their own minds, not necessarily where they turn to porn to look at those, but just what do they, what do they generate in their own mind? And the number one thing that people across the board fantasize about is multi-partner sex. And then when we compare that to some other research about what sorts of porn do people like to watch, and when you break it, and when those researchers broke it down by sexual orientation, heterosexual men, heterosexual women, gay and bisexual men, and lesbian and bisexual women, multi-partner sex showed up in all of those four demographics as one of the top, if not the top two, one of the top four things or, or t- uh, categories of porn that they like to watch. So there's a real correlation between what we fantasize about and then what we end up searching for on those sites, on those porn sites. That makes lots of sense. And, you know, one thing that you were talking about was like how how that can people kind of assume it's addiction, there's wrong, something wrong with that. I see clients at times that they struggle with that. Couples coming in feeling that there's something wrong with their partner or the relationship if one of the partners are consuming porn. So tell us a little bit how you navigate that with clients. Well, so it comes back to what I mentioned earlier about religiosity Mm. and, and beliefs about sexuality, gender roles, things like that. Also, the research has shown that there's something called a moral incongruence that contributes to a person's belief that they are addicted to porn. It's not necessarily that they are addicted. It's that they have their own belief that they are addicted. And the definition of moral incongruence is having a moral disapproval of a thing, yet still doing the thing. So a non-sexual example would be something like, I believe you should always tell the truth. Telling the truth is a good thing all the time, but then doing something, not telling the truth all the time, right? And that create, and so, you know, what we value, what our morality is versus our actual lived behavior. And that's what that moral 
incongruence is. So applying it to sexuality or pornography viewing, I think, for example, I think viewing pornography is bad. I think viewing pornography is wrong, yet viewing pornography. And it's that internal conflict, right? That's what a moral incongruence represents, is it's an internal conflict between who we think we want to be versus what our behavior is actually is in real life. And it's that tussle, that back and forth, that a lot of people feel means they're addicted to porn. Well, no, porn is not an addictive agency, agent rather, it's not an addictive agent. It's really this who I think I want to be, who I tell myself I am versus what is my behavior? And so let's talk about what do you really think and feel about porn? And what are your actual habits of viewing pornography? I like that kind of like looking at it about or the lens of, is it workable? Is it aligned with what you want in life and your sexual behavior or not? In a kind of a non-judgmental way, you know, when you were talking about moral incongruency, I was thinking about many people's relationship with masturbation. Like ever since they're teens, they feel, oh God, I, I, I'm going to go blind. Something going to happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> if I right. masturbate <laughs> and then we know that nothing bad is happening from masturbation, but that push and pull, that in- emotional yeah. internal conflict can create some psychological pain. And we explore, or I explore with my clients, well, where did those beliefs come from, right? Mm-hmm. Did that come from your parents? Did that come from your faith community? Did that come from media? Did that come from peers joking in the locker room? You know, there's shame in that. And so where did that shame come from? Number one, if we can identify its origins is really important because then we can say, well, how do you, what do you really think and feel about masturbation now as an adult? Yes, that's, the, that's what you heard as a child, most likely as a child. What do you think and feel now as an adult and, and helping a person kind of move through, decide whether or not they really do believe those, those messages or not deciding for themselves, as opposed to just sort of just taking it all in unexamined. And, you know, one thing that I think is really important, and you mentioned lots of wonderful things. And I think one thing that was really resonated with me, kind of like thinking about the spectrum of number of different media forms of porn right? Like some people make this verdict that the porn is good or bad. And we can all argue about their things that maybe there are kind of people getting exploited and we don't want that. And there are things that enhancing people's sexuality. So we cannot make that distinction for, for, for such a huge area. And the thing I like to point out is that humans have been making sexual imagery pretty much since the dawn of time, you know, and having done a little bit of traveling, international traveling, when you, when I've gone to some of the biggest, most well-known art museums in the world, you see erotic and sexual imagery that's 100, 200, 300 years old. And now in 20th century, 21st century, we are putting it up on a pedestal in these world famous art museums, right? I don't know how those art pieces of art were received at the time of their creation, 100, 200, 300 years ago. But now we say, oh, wow, look at look at this. And we have it in a public space, (laughs) right, (laughs) where people are paying money to get in to, to look and to wander and to appreciate. Mm-hmm. I right? like that. So, so there's a cultural context here that we're missing, right? In the, in some of the, in the panic around porn. Well, then we're toward the end of our time, but I, I know that me and you, even over the phone, we talked about this <laughs> for a good hour. Yep. So tell us if, if there's anything that you want our listeners to know before we're closing our conversation today. 
what would I want folks to know? One, first and foremost, porn is not an addictive agent. It's really about what is the individual's relationship to porn? What do they think about it? How do they feel about it? What is their behavior around it? And that oftentimes when, when couples are in conflict over one partner's porn viewing. It's about how each partner has different beliefs, attitudes, and feelings about what that partner is doing. It's not the porn. The porn is not the problem. It's that there's a disagreement, whether it's a moral disagreement or a behavioral disagreement, or that one partner's behavior creates a lot of anxiety in the other partner's behavior. And so if you were to think of any other activity, taking a bath, or exercising, right? If you can if you can replace porn with any other activity, then you quickly realize, oh, it's not really about the porn. Mm -hmm. It's about this person is in conflict about something or this couple is in conflict. And it's and the porn is like the convenient the convenient pathway to to arguing or 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 distant or even distancing from each other. But it's really about, well, let's go on a journey of self-exploration. Tell me about your relationship with porn. What do you like? What do you, what don't you like? When do you watch? When do you turn to it? What's happening just before? What's happening in for you just before you decide to watch pornography? And to get curious about that, right? Because it's not, it's not about the porn. It's about what, what's going on inside the person. You know, I think that's such a beautiful distinction because I feel if we learn to talk about our disagreements, then that can make us stronger as couples of people in the yes. relationship because people sometimes have this assumption that healthy couples, they agree on everything, right? right. So right. <laughs> I think right. the, key, the key is that people who are in a healthy relationship, they argue, but they argue better. They are more yes. productive. So yes. uh, right. this can in be an invitation for people to kind of learn those skills and learn to negotiate and talk about things that are not working for them. Right. Yeah. Healthy disagreement. I like that. Then I know you have a private practice. I know you're the ASAC supervisor. And I know many people of my audiences, they're therapists, they want to become ASAC certified. So tell us a little bit more about your practice, your supervision that you're doing. So people can know where can they find you. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as an ASEC certified sex therapist and supervisor. So I have a private practice where I seek individual adult individuals and couples regarding some sexuality issue. And then another part of my work is that I provide supervision to those licensed therapists anywhere in the right now, it's all Americans anywhere in the country who are licensed clinicians who wish to pursue becoming an ASEC certified sex therapist. And so I'm, I monitor their cases. We talk about their sex therapy training program that they're in. I sometimes give educational pieces if, if there's something that they don't, that they need more uh, training on and just help them become certified sex therapists. And, and it's a wonderful part of my work, something I really enjoy. And, you know, I, I think you're a wonderful supervisor and I'll tell you uh, why I think that's the case, but like, let, let, let me kind of a little bit tell people about the uh, kind of how to become a sex therapist. I get this question all the time. So most people that are sex therapists, they are, get their certification through ASAC these day and age. And there's some educational part and there is some supervision hours that you need right. to do. And you have to present your cases, learn from a supervisor like Diane that is certified in that. And you know that I would have noticed when we were doing consultation, you're really good with being able to see things from people's perspective. 
you're really good with kind of not shaming, not being judgmental and kind of you have this openness to you that I think is very powerful for a supervisor to have. So if people are interested, I think you, you're a wonderful supervisor. Oh, thank you, Nazan. It's very kind. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So hopefully we'll have you in the future episode. Thank you for your time. And yes. this was wonderful. I'm sure our listeners uh, learned a lot. Great. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys found this conversation useful. This is the second week that we're talking about porn consumption. And I'm curious to hear what you think about the role of porn in your sex life. I know that this conversation can be very heated and either sides of people who are pro-porn and against porn, they're very passionate about it. But I want to hear your thoughts on it. So please head over to Instagram. You can find me at Sexology Podcast. That's my handle. And share your thoughts with us. You can direct message me. I post a lot about number of different things around psychology of sex. And this month we're focusing specifically on porn. I want to hear your thoughts because you get to have your opinion. And I want to hear where you're coming from when it comes to this topic. Also, if you like the content of this podcast, please help us out with sharing your favorite episode. Maybe this episode was your favorite episode in your social media accounts and tag us. Thank you so much in advance. And I'm looking forward to talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.